yesterday, we were finishing up in letter number two, how in his response, he begins by saying that, first of all, the criteria by which you have chosen to measure seem to be very difficult criteria to measure the purpose of religion. So he says, now, even if we set that aside, though, what we first should do is don't look at proxies for the success or lack of success of a specific religion. Rather, use the, try to figure out what it is that you're trying to measure in the first place. What you're trying to measure is Judaism itself. So as we read yesterday, that we began reading yesterday, I think let's start it again, actually. Okay, so we'll start again from on page 14, last line. But I shall omit all these questions. In other words, all of his questions with the idea of using these proxies for the success of religion or Judaism. Let us put aside the yardstick with which to measure and first obtain an idea of the object that we wish to measure. Judaism, as it appears in its history and its teachings. In the process of studying Judaism, perhaps our thinking about the purpose of man will undergo change. We may arrive at a different criterion for the existence and purpose of nations. In other words, the key to understanding why we exist, what the purpose of the world, what the purpose of every nation, and what the purpose of the Jewish nation in particular, that might come very, very clear, and then we will no longer need to use any sort of proxy. But we must first acquaint ourselves with Judaism through the source, which it itself offers. The only documentation and evidence about itself that it has salvaged from the wreck of all its other fortunes, the Torah. So let's look at note number five now. Let's turn to the notes in the back. The term Torah, so it's on page 19. The term Torah bears a variety of meanings. Sometimes it refers only to the five books of the Pentateuch and sometimes to the entire body of divine teachings that constitute Judaism. Literally, Torah means teaching or instruction, okay? So it could be a very generic term, right? Or it could be a very... Uh, a very um, general and, and comprise every single aspect of the Torah, or it can be very, very specific as well. So you'll hear people say like the Torah Eretz Yisrael, which means like the teachings about Israel, right? So you could use it very, very specific, or you could use it very broad. Rabbi Hirsch frequently renders Torah in German as Lehrer, which can be translated freely as a body of teaching. In Hebrew, to teach, is etymologically related to the term for conceiving, according to Rabbi Shamshin or Fal Hirsch. Torah is the seed put into the womb of a nation from which its whole life is to develop. Right? Parenthetically, it's important to recognize something about Rabbi Hirsch in his approach to, to, the, to the Torah and, and his approach to grammar. So what he believes is that if you have two different letters that are in combination, sound similar to, an, sorry, if you have two letters in a word, right, and they sound like a certain sound they put together, and then in another word, they have the same two letters, that there's, some, there's a hint over here that there's something similar about their roots. So that's essentially what he's saying over here. Should be noted, however, that already the Greeks translated Torah as law. This is understandable, for the idea of law is central to the Torah, as we shall note. Okay, so but Torah is not only law, Torah is not only history, right? It's comprised of many different facets. And through the Torah, we must attain also an understanding of Israel's destiny. For is not Judaism an historical phenomenon? And is not the Torah the only account of its origin, of its first appearance on the stage of history, 
and of its existence for a considerable length of time thereafter. So when you're studying a specific phenomenon, a historical phenomenon, what do you do? You first go to the original source and you figure out what's the closest you can get to history as it was happening, right? A historian who wants to write a book about George Washington, what does he do? He goes back and he studies all the letters and he studies the letters from George Washington to his friends and he studies letters and newspaper accounts of that day. He's not going to look at things that have been said later on, right? You go back to the beginnings, right? So if you want to figure out what Judaism is all about, you have to study it from its original source. And if from the cradle of this nation, in contrast to all others, voices can be heard, voices that disclose the purpose of this people, for the sake of which it entered the arena of history, and with which the course of its destiny is bound up. Should we not listen to these voices and let them help us evaluate this nation's destiny? As for the teachings of Judaism, the Torah, written and oral, is anyway our sole source. Therefore, to the Torah. Okay, let's look at source number six, and then footnote number six, which is actually a pretty, um, pretty powerful one. Right from the outset, the author stresses that a proper understanding of the Torah must include both its oral and written parts at a time when the authority of the oral tradition in particular was under attack. Rabbi Hirsch, in all his writings, battled for recognition of the fact that the written and oral traditions cannot be separated and that both are from Sinai. In his commentary on the Torah, on Shemot in Exodus 21.2, he wrote, after all, it was not out of this book, the written Torah, that the law was to be acquired. The Torah Shebiksav, the written Torah, is to the Torah Shebalpeh, the oral Torah, in the relation of short notes to a full and extensive lecture on a scientific subject. For the student who has heard the whole lecture, short notes are quite sufficient to bring back afresh to his mind at any time the whole subject of the lecture. For those who had not heard the lecture from the master, such notes would be completely useless. It is an incredibly powerful way to describe the nature of the relationship between the oral and written Torah. So it, to, to expand on this, how he actually expands at greater length himself in his commentary, it says like this, the Talmud explains that the Torah was not actually written down until the end of the 40 year sojourn in the desert. What were they doing for their 40 years in the desert, right? Some of the time they were traveling, but not all the time were they traveling. What were they doing? They were spending time learning Torah. Now, what was the Torah that they were learning? So Rabbi Hirsch says the Torah that they were learning was the oral Torah. Moshe was teaching the oral Torah to the children of Israel for 40 years with a tremendous amount of um, reviewing and constantly reviewing and going over the oral Torah. At the end of the 40 years, he wrote down the written Torah. But the nature of the relationship of the written Torah, as he says, were sort of like the, the, um, the, the crib notes, right? after the lecture, that's going to help you recreate the lecture. But that was always the intention of how that was supposed to interact, those two, the two Torahs interacting with each other. So it would be ridiculous to think that by looking at the written Torah, that would be sufficient. Um, okay, but until the end is not really, not really what we're looking for. Okay, let's continue. Before we open it, however, let us consider how to read it, the Torah. As a subject for philological or antiquarian, antiquarian research, when we read it, what are we doing? We're just like, oh, yeah, it's interesting. It's an academic subject. As corroboration for antediluvian and geological hypotheses, right? Is the purpose of the Torah, is it a history book purely? 
in the in the creation of the world is it trying to give us you know a real understanding and a very clear way of how god created the world is that what the purpose of the torah is in the expectation of finding revelations of esoteric mysteries certainly not as jews we will read this book as a book tendered to us by god in order that we learn from it about ourselves this is a very critical distinction between the way the hirschian philosophy looks at the relationship of man to god and the way other religions look at the relationship between man and God. In that footnote that he says right here, footnote number seven, what he describes is a famous quote from Rabbi Breuer. Rabbi Breuer was a student of Rabbi Hirsch, actually a grandson of Rabbi Hirsch, but he had the same mentality, the same philosophy. And he says the idea of having a theology in Judaism is by definition an oxymoron because theology means what do we think about God? Judaism recognizes we don't have any thoughts about God. That's impossible. The only thing that we have thoughts about are what does God want from us? So that's not us looking up and studying upwards, which is what theology means, but rather it's the opposite. Us figuring out what does God want from us? And that's what he describes in the Torah. What we are and what we should be during our earthly existence. We will read it as Torah, literally instruction, directing and guiding us within God's world and among humanity making our inner self come alive. After all, we are attempting to know and understand Judaism. Let us place ourselves within Judaism and ask ourselves, what kind of people are they who accept this book as the God-given basis and way of life?